welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This week, we heard Chief Executive Carrie Lam's fourth policy address, and I was interested to hear about plans to invigorate Southern District. Aberdeen Harbour is a subject close to my heart, and I often photograph the egrets there. I also enjoy paying one of the older sampan ladies there to take me around the harbour. I also enjoy heading down the back of Jumbo Floating Restaurant. There's an eclectic bunch of structures at the back, and plants growing out. As you'll have probably read, Jumbo closed down earlier this year, and I was concerned for the future of this iconic piece of Hong Kong heritage, where people have so many memories. This week, I learned it's been donated to Ocean Park, and will also be used by non-governmental organisations. Let's see what happens, but fingers crossed. I'll look at doing a Hong Kong heritage about the Jumbo Floating Restaurant in the next few weeks. If you do have any memories you'd like to share, then do get in touch. I'll read out my email address at the end of the program, or you can write in on my Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page. Well, this week I've been delving back in the archives to two interviews that were on the air a decade ago. Later in the program, we'll be on a walk and talk with writer and publisher and longtime Hong Konger Pete Spurrier as he takes me on a heritage hike. But first, I wanted to share with you an interview I did with O.C. Lin, who, in October 2010, was the chief executive of the Hong Kong AIDS Foundation, of which she remains a senior consultant. It's for me one of the more memorable and remarkable interviews, just for the starkness of the poverty that she describes that was her childhood. I was born in Shao Kiwan, being, being the youngest of the family. Um, I was born in 1959. But that time, most of the families were poor, and my family was poor as well. Um, so poor that uh, my parents could not guarantee we had sufficient to take each day. So in terms of enough to eat? Yes, yes, exactly. But luckily, by that time, we have different religious bodies offering um, support to poor families. So um, each month, we could go to a, a little church, which was quite close to us, and then to receive some rice, um, some canned food, and some, some, sometimes uh, some biscuits as well, uh, in particular Christmas time. Um, all this was a very, very variable to us because that was one of the major source of food we had. As a child, we did not have much to pray, as you can imagine. Well, we did not have enough food and we have never been given any toys at, at all. But I had a feeling that um, kids in those days are much more imaginative. We could pick up any rubbish and then pray with it. Like uh, at one time, I prayed with my brother when we when we pick up a paper box and then we bought this paper box back home and then pretend that it is a boat and then each of us write on this paper box for you know half of an afternoon so that's my my lifetime um, when I was a kid so you were saying that you grew up in a very poor family in Shaokiwan so what were the circumstances of your family were you a Hong Kong family or had your parents come in from mainland China my parents came from mainland China during the Japanese war. All my brothers and sisters, including myself, were born in Hong Kong. I guess by those times, a lot of refugees just, you know, um, came from mainland, from different places, from mainland China. So where, where did your parents come from? Um, they from, come from the southern part of Guangdong. This is not far away place, but it could be very difficult. 
So they had arrived in Hong Kong during the Sino-Japanese War. Now, how many siblings did you have? How many brothers and sisters? I have three brothers and two sisters, but actually I should have five sisters, four brothers. Um, the reason that um, some of them passed away during childhood, and the other is uh, well, I got another sister was given to another family because my parents could not afford to have so many kids. So when you were growing up in Shaokiwana under very poor circumstances, what what kind of living conditions were you in? Uh, I, we were living in a wooden hut. You know, in Shaokiwana now they changed the place into some public uh, housing estates. But in those days they were all wooden villages. Uh, we were living in one of a very tiny uh, wooden house. So you lived in a tiny wooden house, you and your five siblings, also uh, your parents. What did your parents do in terms of work? My father worked as a hawker. He turned out to be a very famous cook in uh, making fish balls. And then he passed away, he passed away in 1996. And most of my, my time, my mum would take, a, take some factory work, outlet work, and then body back to home, and then perform all this work in home, in order that he, she could take care of the family as well. So did you have a sewing machine at home? She's not using sewing machine. We could not afford to have a sewing machine. She just used a, you know... Um, like needle and thread. Exactly. So your father would hawk fish balls. Your mum brought sewing home from yes. the factories. Now, when you were living in this wooden hut, what kind of facilities? I mean, how did your mum cook for the family? Well, by that time, you could not imagine that uh, we have a very well-defined cage, very well-defined sitting room. No, there's, there's no such thing. Just an empty space. And in the corner of that hut is a, is a fireplace so that my mom can cook. And uh, believe it or not, I did not have my own bed till when I was about 16, 17. And at night time, my mum ha had a bed with my, my father as well. And then most of the kids would just lie on the floor. And then in the daytime, the, day, the floor will be, become the open space for everyone. I'm talking today with O.C. Lin, the chief executive of the Hong Kong AIDS Foundation. O.C. Lin began in very poor circumstances in Shao Wan. She lived there with her five brothers and sisters and grew up in a wooden hut. So you're saying that you didn't have a bed until you were age 16 or 17. So how did you sleep? Well, in the, in the night time when, you know, those who had a bed go to the bed, there was no one praying in the room, um, no activities at all. And then we used the room as, as our sleeping place. So you basically, did you have to be with, all, with your belongings in terms of your clothes, the bed covers, did everybody have to be very neat about the space? Actually, we do not have any belongings at all. We may have, you know, one or two pairs of clothes, but then they were all kept together. And then in the night time, we do not have any linens to put on the floor. We just slept on the floor and that's it. That's a hard upbringing. Yes, it is. When you were growing up, you were born in 1959, so when you were a young child in the 1960s, were there just so many people who were poor around you that you didn't feel it? Or when you went to school, was it quite difficult because there were richer children around you? I would say in those days, most of the families were very poor, uh, like our families. And the difference as compared with today is, number one, by those times, poverty is common. So this is nothing special to be poor. The other is, everything were much cheaper than nowadays. And the third one is, we did not have any expectation on, you know, how life should be. But nowadays, people would expect, well, I should have a better life. And therefore, poverty or being poorer than others means something 
particularly difficult to people in nowadays than in those days when I was born. In my school, for example, I guess about half of the classmates were in similar situations. Some might be a little bit better, some might be a little bit worse, but we were okay. We did not have any expectation at all. As long as you know, I am sure I could have my rice. I am sure I would not be hungry. That would be okay. You grew up in a wooden hut. You had to sleep on the floor without any bed linen. You only got your own bed at sixteen or seventeen. Do you remember getting that bed? Actually,、uh, when I started to have that bed, that is not a stable bed. That is a folding bed. So the only difference was I did not have to sleep on floor, but I could have a folding bed. And it was up to my before university days that I had my own bed because my brothers, my sisters started to get married and left the home, and therefore I could take up their bed. The first time I had my own stable bed, I found myself a very wealthy, you know, a, a gifted, a, a very well-off person because now I have my own place. And later on, I used part of my bed as a bookshelf. And then I store up some books for myself. I was very happy, even with just a stable bed. In terms of the hut that you lived in in Shaokewan, you were saying that it's a whole village of huts. What were the facilities? I mean, did you have a communal bathroom, or did you just have to go to the public toilets?、Uh, we had to go to the public toilets, and we had to go to the the public、um, drainage. Facilities to get some water, and then to pick all those water back to home. But because I was the youngest, so all these difficult work were done by my sister. And、uh, so, in terms of washing, you just had to just get a bucket of water and do it at home. We had to carry all those dirty clothes to those places where、uh, water was supplied, and wash the clothes, and then bring back the, the clothes and to, to hang it. What about electricity? Uh, we had electricity, but you know,、uh, for those for those small huts, we just got an electric bulb one for the whole home. Did you? I mean, did you have a radio at home? Later, maybe. Later, when、um, the situation gradually improved, the only thing I could remember is the first time my family got a TV was when I in secondary、um, school form three. Then my family started to have the first television. Were you still living in a hut at that point, or had you no, moved into public moved, housing? Because that the、um, wooden huts were、um, demolished, and we had to we had to move out. And the whole family,、uh, at the very beginning, we stayed for the whole family. We stayed in a room of about two hundred square feet, <clears throat> and then later on, when my sisters, my my brothers came out to work, the situation improved, and we moved to a bigger flat, also in Shaokiwan. So,、uh, in terms of space, yeah, two hundred square foot is not a lot. But I suppose were your parents happier to be in a public housing flat as opposed to a wooden hut? Was it safer? Oh yes, definitely. Because by the、uh, two incidents happened when I when we were living in a, a small hut. One was a fire. The fire started in quite far away, but all those people were so scared that we have to move whatever we had outside. And then at the end, luckily,、uh, our our home was not destroyed. And the other was a flooding, a flooding from you know those heavy rain. And then we were very very that our our home might be flooded, and then we had to move out again. And then during those time, we did not have um so much government support saying that while、well, flooding was coming, you have to stay in a community hall. No such thing. You have to find your own place. The only place we we could is move out whatever we could, and then stay in some somewhere. Somewhere means somewhere on the street.
for example, you have something to cover you up so that you don't have to expose your, yourself into the ring. You just so, so you'd have something that, that gave you at least a, a part even, of a roof? You, you find it yourself. So under a bridge or something? Yeah, exactly. You find a place yourself, and then after the rain, you came, you came back home. Luckily, your home was not destroyed, then you, you could continue to live there. I'm talking to O.C. Lin, the chief executive of the Hong Kong AIDS Foundation. O.C. Lin grew up in Shaokewan in a wooden hut with her five siblings. Her father was uh, a fishbowl hawker and her mother was a factory worker. Growing up in Shaokewan, despite, as I say, a lack of money and, and often a lack of food, what about when it came round to Mid-Autumn Festival, Chinese New Year and other festivals throughout the year? How did you celebrate those? Well, um... The most wonderful thing for us for those uh, festivals was we will have good food. Good food means uh, we will have chickens, we will have some roast porks, which we would never have in ordinary days. Those were the only days that we would be able to have, and also mushrooms. My mother was very good in cooking mushrooms. So um, whenever all those festivals were coming, you could smell in the home of all those good food. And that made you so happy. And then when you travel around, especially in Chinese New Year, just saying some good words, and people will give you a red packets, and all those red packets you can keep it yourself, and then you can buy something for yourself. Now, looking back, I mean, how, you know, your brothers and sisters, how do they also regard their upbringing? I guess um, there were positive and negative aspects. Negative being that um, my um, elder brothers and sisters, because the family was so poor that even though they could, but um, the family could not afford the school fee and they could not have proper education. I was a lucky one because I'm the youngest and therefore um, everyone saved up some money to support my schooling. That was the negative aspect, even though I'm, I'm pretty sure that they were much more intelligent than myself. Um, but the good point is, having so difficult life in the past, that made them much more tough in facing difficult days. And like myself, they are also very grateful for what they have today. My thanks to O.C. Lin for telling me about what it was like to grow up in a squatter hut here and how the family helped one another to pull through. And now on to my second historic interview of this week's programme, which is with writer and publisher Pete Spurrier, who does sterling work in publishing books about Hong Kong in English. Pete is an avid hiker and has comprehensively clambered up and down every hill in Hong Kong. He's the author of three books on hiking, which are on their third print run. They're that popular. The Serious Hiker's Guide to Hong Kong. Mm. The Leisurely Hiker's Guide to Hong Kong. Mm, maybe. And the Heritage Hiker's Guide to Hong Kong. Ah, now we're talking. 20 heritage walks, each lasting two to three hours, on the streets of Hong Kong and Kowloon and the villages of the New Territories. So in this interview I did with Pete Spurrier in 2011, I join him on a trail that takes us from the University of Hong Kong and along into Sai Ying Pun. 
So we're sitting here beside the granite columns of Lock Yu Hall, which is the main uh, hall of Hong Kong University, built in 1912 and has become a, a symbol of the university as a whole, very attractive building. And as we're looking out to the hillside, uh, we're hearing a bit of construction work because it's coming up to the university's 100th anniversary and they're extending their campus across the hillside towards Pok Falam. It's going to be double the size it is today. Now, look, Yu Hall is uh, how old? I think it was built in 1912, named after a, a Malaysian-Chinese tin magnate who provided funds for the university, the, the new university, which was the first in Hong Kong. So Lockyer Hall is, is actually rather lovely. It's uh, all, all covered in uh, pastel plaster and uh, you've got large columns coming down and uh, one of the lovely things about it is also it's, it's surrounded by trees that you know have been here for, for decades so it's actually quite shady here on a, a sunny blue sky day. Now this is the start of a route that's going to take us down from the University of Hong Kong and where are we going next in Pok Phillam? That's right we're, we're starting on Pok Phillam Road which is the main entrance to the university. We're going to walk through the campus uh, to see a few of its heritage buildings then come down across Bonham Road into the western end of the mid-levels downhill into Sai Yinpun, a very traditionally Chinese district. We're looking up at the clock tower of Lock Yu Hall. It's quite a well-known landmark. It uh, used to be able to be seen from the harbour, although there's taller buildings in front of it now. Um, during the Second World War, the whole building was stripped of its wood, of its roof, of its doors, of its floorboards uh, for firewood, and everything was restored after the war. I suppose here, also at the front of Lock Yu Hall, as well as the clock tower up above, uh, you've also got a huge archway coming out. I suppose here they've actually got the space to maintain all this stuff. That's right, and, and just opposite we've got an older building with the dome, which I think they call the Hung Hing Ying building now, uh, but was originally the Students' Union in, uh, I think that was built in 1920, and that still overlooks Bonham Road. Oh, nice to see a bit of traditional brick. Yeah, yeah, red brick is always, always attractive. And nowadays we've got a line of palm trees in front of Lock Hugh Hall, which with the, the pastel uh, colouring uh, comes across very well. So we're stepping into the lobby now of the main building, uh, we're going to walk up through it because Hong Kong University is built across a hillside so that you can reach one building from the first floor of another and so on. Uh, here in the lobby we've got the foundation stone laid in 1910 I think uh, by the governor of the day, Frederick Lugard. And it was a struggle at the time to get the money to finance this new university. The colonial office didn't provide much, so they had to collect funds from Hong Kong people, uh, among which was uh, Sir Holmes G. Modi, who uh, is remembered in Modi Road. He provided a large portion of the funds. And here, halfway up the stairs, is Sir Holmes G. N. Modi, 1838 to 1911. Well, when I say here he is, there's actually... Uh, a bust of him on a wooden plinth. And he was a member of the Parsi community of Hong Kong, uh, very prominent in those years, who still have their own cemetery in Happy Valley. It's absolutely lovely along here, actually. The, all the columns, the archways, the big doors, the big windows. We're walking through a cloistered courtyard now, uh, wooden doors and windows on, on the insides, and uh, palm trees, very, very tall palm trees, and, and banana trees, I think, on the inside, uh, all bathed in sunshine. Yeah, absolutely lovely day to see the old buildings here of the University of Hong Kong. So just up the hill from here, there are three, uh, there were originally three halls, uh, red brick again, that were built for the students. Um, Typhoon Wander in 1962 damaged them a great deal and one of them was uh, demolished in uh, 1992. Uh, but they've been restored now and they're now used for things such as the Centre for Buddhist Studies, I think, and, and various other faculties of the university. So where are we heading down to now, Pete? <laughs> 
we're going to go down the hill now towards the what is now the Feng Ping Shan Museum and the Tang Qingong School of Chinese, which are both on Bonham Road. Certainly a great day to be out walking after a very cold night. We are catching a bit of the sunshine today as we head past the Knowles building and down and out out of the University of Hong Kong here in Pok Phulam. Standing across from the University of Hong Kong here, we have uh, just uh, replenished ourselves with uh, uh, a box of hot soy milk as we walk around. And uh, of course, along this road, there are some lovely banyan trees still. There are, just, just Bonham Road now, which is named after one of Hong Kong's first governors. There's a lovely banyan that hangs over the road with hanging roots, providing shade um, and a space for birds. Um, and just across the road is the Feng Ping Shan Museum, uh, which contains Chinese artwork. Uh, and I'd encourage anybody to visit the University of Hong Kong. Although it's a university campus, you're free to wander around. There's plenty of things to see, uh, including the museum there, which is uh, free of entry. Oh, should we get off this busy road, though? Yes, let's pop <laughs> down a side street. We've just walked down Hing Hon Road, and uh, author and publisher Pete had a little bit of a shock and surprise. Well, that's right. I, I, I wanted to walk down Hing Hon Road, which is just opposite the University of Hong Kong, uh, to show you some of the old um, three-storey buildings, which used to be prominent all over the mid-levels. These were uh, All of these had sea views. There was great ventilation in those days, very different from the uh, tall, narrow canyons that the mid-levels is made of now. Uh, but we've come around the corner, and number 19, which we photographed for this guidebook, has just been demolished. So the guidebook is already uh, out of date and it's already uh, a bit of a historical document in just six months. <laughs> well, yes, well, I am glad you, you took photographs. The photographs actually don't appear in the book. But, uh, yes, coming along here, I'm, I'm glad that you have made a record of that. Of course, mid-levels is now changing completely, isn't it? It is very fast. Uh, and there's one three-storey building still left on this road on the corner, which is very nice, so you can get an idea of how people used to live. And there's another beautiful three-storey building just further along Bonham Road uh, with uh, verandas on all three storeys and festooned with um, hanging plants. Uh, a really wonderful sight. Gives you an idea of what the whole of Hong Kong's urban area used to look like. Pok Fulam is, is gradually becoming built up, but you still have a sense of air around here. I mean, mid-levels itself was always a prestigious place to live, but uh, I think people are now moving out. That's right, and actually what you can see with these, um, with the building we're looking at on the corner, a three-storey building, uh, that was inhabited by a Chinese family who'd moved up the hill from Saiyingpun earlier, Saiyingpun being at ground level, uh, being near to uh, Shengwan, that was the area of the Chinese bazaar. Obviously, between Saiyingpun and the peak, there was an area of more middle-class housing, and as Chinese people became more prosperous, they were able to move up the hill, and that's the kind of building we're looking at at the moment. So uh, your advice would be around this area then is get your camera out fast. That's right, because it may be uh, changing very next week. Yeah. So we're, we're going to walk down a, a stone staircase now beside a stream, uh, which leads us back down to Pokfilam Road. Uh, Hing Hon Road, we're looking at the old street sign here, a very nice, sort of almost like an enamel advert uh, uh, nailed to the wall. Um, is a private road, it's a very old neighbourhood, and the wrought iron gates here are actually still closed every night. Now, the, when we go down Pok Fulam Road, it will lead into Saiyang Pun. Straight down the hill again. We'll come to High Street, 3rd Street, 2nd Street and 3rd Street, 1st uh, Street, and then back down to the tram. And how do estate agents regard it? Well, I, I call this Saiyang Pun. I live around here. If you're a state agent, you might call it Mid-Levels West. <laughs> uh, Let's stretch it across <laughs> as far as possible. I love the area of Saiyang Pun, actually. It's, it's one of the older areas of Hong Kong Island. And... Um, 
with with that age comes not only the buildings themselves but also the the old stone walls the banyan roots enmeshed in in into those uh into that stone it's not just uh modern concrete that's right and you can still see the stone steps of buildings which are long gone actually the foundations and the retaining walls remain and, and you can get an idea of what maybe stood there before but also you can see Sainpan still has a lot of the old 1960s um, corner house buildings that Hong Kong style of a building which conforms to the shape of the road they're actually rounded on the corner which is very characteristic of Hong Kong as you walk along Sainpan of course there's first street second street third street and High Street. Do you know why these streets are named like that? Yes, this area was laid out as a grid, actually, as well as First, Second, Third and High Street. You've got Western Street, Centre Street and Eastern Street, which make a square. That would have been called Fourth Street, the highest one, if four was not such an unlucky number uh, for Chinese people. So they've called it High Street instead, which is much more positive. Yes. So I like the idea of a grid. It's easier to find your way around. But as, you, as you're saying about these stone retaining walls, in fact, we're just walking past one here how much would you say i mean you've been here nearly two decades how much of sai and pun would you say has changed uh, actually a fair amount of it it's, it's it's a great shame that in the past um hong kong didn't really care for its heritage as much as people do now uh, there was a, a line of wonderful edwardian buildings on center street uh with wrought iron balconies um trees growing from the rooftops uh quite dilapidated and they were demolished about 10 years ago but they could equally have been saved restored uh, and made into something uh, that people could have enjoyed for the future and i would imagine that some people i mean obviously old buildings uh, often have a bad name people prefer modern flats modern amenities but would you say that there possibly is a market for you know in the same way that uh, other places have made factories or docklands into sort of luxury flats i'm thinking of london manchester yeah, areas like I'm, that. I'm thinking it's moving that way now uh, particularly in places like soho which are trendy areas to live in anyway there's plenty of three-story four-story buildings walk-ups which people are renovating now um there, there is even one which has had it so it's old um metal window frames restored uh, a lot of those are ripped out and replaced with aluminium this one has gone gone backwards and made it look like uh, its original architecture uh, as for factory buildings uh, in in the west you tend to get wonderful old red brick factory buildings made of arches uh, we don't have that here the factory buildings are prefab concrete um, not really great for conversion into living quarters unfortunately on the corner of high street and western street is Kaoyan Church and uh, you've got a lovely photograph in the book of a whole crowd of people outside the church so is that the congregation? That's right it's actually one of my favourite archive photographs in the book uh, we're looking at the uh, front steps of Kaoyan Church here in 1932 I think when it was just built actually it hasn't changed a bit in the intervening years and while the entire congregation is sitting on, on the steps posing for a photograph uh, and you had to pose for a long time in those days um, to get the right photograph you've got the small children on the front row who can't stay still so they're all blurred <laughs> then in the background behind uh, in, in front of a lovely uh, colonnaded building which is now a school next door you've got two girls in the sort of long gowns which you might associate with uh, Shanghainese advertising posters from the 1930s so a very charming scene I'm taking a walk with Pete Spurrier, who's a Hong Kong publisher and the writer of the Heritage Hikers Guide to Hong Kong. You've got about 20 trails in here, Pete. So tell me about how you wandered around these buildings and decided what went in and what didn't. Yes, well, this book actually came off the uh, experience of a previous one, The Serious Hikers Guide to Hong Kong, which was the major long-distance trails, the Makalihos, the Hong Kong Trail, the Wilson Trail. Um, but people seem to like the elements of local history and culture that I wrote about. So we, we went ahead and did this one, which is more urban walks. 
uh, 20 walks around mostly Hong Kong, Central, Wan Chai, Quarry Bay, Stanley, uh, Chim Sa Choi, Mong Kok, the urban area, where you can find the most visible uh, aspects of heritage. Uh, but then we also went a little bit into the new territories. We did Tai Po and Canton, because there you've got a different, an older kind of heritage, the villages and aspects of what Hong Kong was like before the British came, uh, the Qing Dynasty, and even further back. Yes, it's a, a walk of 20 trails uh, published by Formasia and in using a lot of Formasia's archives of photographs. So you've got a whole variety of, of different decades marked in there. As I mentioned, we've, we've just been up to University of Hong Kong on a, a very sunny day. Uh, obviously, uh, on urban trails, you're going to pass quite some noisy areas, but we're just in the archway of Karyan Church. And yes, the fact that it was built in 1932, and you can see these restless children on the photograph, I wonder if any of those are, are still with us. But uh, just down the side here, we've got a whole bunch of primary school children playing. Uh, but generally, as you walk around, of course, anticipate that you're going to have a few urban hills, particularly on Hong Kong Island. But other than that, the trails aren't meant to be strenuous. No, not at all. No, uh, each one will take two or three hours walking at a gentle pace so they can be followed by anybody. If you've got family visiting in town, you want to show them a little bit of Hong Kong's history, then just take one of these trails. It it's usually ends somewhere like a, a museum or a, or a temple or a restaurant, so nothing too strenuous. My thanks to Pete Sparrier, talking there on the Heritage Hiker's Guide to Hong Kong. So, just a reminder that if you'd like to tell me about your memories of the Jumbo Floating Restaurant or you have photos that you'd like to share... You can either send a message on my Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page or email me at hkhradio3 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.